We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 109. This podcast is entitled 16 Frighteningly Creepy Things Kids Have Said to Babysitters. When kids say the darndest things, it's usually cute, innocent and sweet. But there are times when the darndest translates to creepiest, like when they totally freaked out their parents and really scaring the bejesus out of their babysitters in this list. These kids blurt out the most eerie, bone-chilling sentences you never want to hear in a million years. Are you ready for this? from the creepycreepydiply.com website. 16 Frighteningly Creepy Things Kids Have Said to Babysitters And it's by Uberfax. 1. I was babysitting a kid and we were watching TV in his basement. All of a sudden he shuts the TV off and whips his head to stare at the wall behind him. He stared for a solid three minutes and said, Not now and continued watching TV. A few minutes later, he looked at the wall again and said, I'll see you later, okay? I was so freaked out. Two. Two years ago, I was looking through my school yearbook with my five-year-old cousin. When we came to the page with my year two class on it, she pointed to a boy's photo and said, That looks just like Nicholas. When I asked who Nicholas was, she just said, the boy in my closet, and continued to look through the pages. I almost died. 3. My little nephew used to talk about a woman who would visit his room at night. He said she wore a red dress, that her name was Franny, and that she would sing to him, and that she floats. 4. A few years ago I was putting my friend's daughter to bed for the night. She was about three at the time, and she was at the stage where she'd regularly fight to go to sleep. She asked me why she had to go to bed, and I said, because it is late, and it's time for little girls to get a good night's rest. She then pointed at nothing across the room and said, 
What about that girl? 5. Little kids know some weird stuff. My niece is four and talks about her older sister constantly. She is always talking to her too. She is an only child and has no idea her mother had a miscarriage a few years ago. 6. I was heading to the bathroom on the second floor of my auntie's house when I saw my cousin April on the stairs. She was four at the time, so very hyperactive. She was busy making funny faces whilst sitting on the stairs. I asked her what she was doing. She said, I'm copying the lady with the braid. I looked around. There was no one else but us. I asked her, where is the lady, April? She pointed to a beam running parallel to the stairs. I asked April, what is the lady doing? She said, making funny faces. Thinking nothing of it, I started walking up the stairs again when April said something that stopped me in my tracks. Her braid is around her neck. I turned around and asked April to repeat herself. April pointed upwards. The lady is hanging by her braid. She's making funny faces. Then April started making a face which I then realised was someone gasping for air. 7. I lost my boyfriend to a stray bullet a few months back, and when I went to visit his little cousin a few days after it happened, he came up to me while I was crying. He asked me why I was crying, so I told him that I missed my boyfriend. He had this confused look on his face and then said, Why? He's sitting on the doorstep. 8. I once babysat a girl called Sarah, who used to love when I went round. Her mum used to tell me how she always requested me over the others. One evening, Sarah took things a step further by saying, When you die, I want to put you in a glass jar so I can keep you and see you forever. 9. I was watching my neighbour's three-year-old daughter and she looked up me and asked, When's the baby going to come out of your tummy? Two days later, I found out I was pregnant. 10. I was watching my nephew and I asked him what he was colouring. A skeleton-making machine was his response. A quick glance over his shoulder revealed that he was not a colouring skeleton maker. He was in fact designing a flesh removal machine, complete with rivets for channelling blood. 11. One night I was babysitting my friend's children. The youngest, aged five, drew a picture of a woman hanging from the ceiling, looked up at me and said, She told me to draw this. She's coming for you. Hide. 12. I was cuddling my friend's three-year-old son and he said very seriously, I promise I won't ever chew on your bones. I promise. 13. A few years ago I was babysitting a friend's daughter. They lived in an apartment with a big patio window. 
She walked up to the glass door leading out to the patio and stared motionless into the night for several minutes. Shortly after, she ran into my arms saying, Scary! Too scary! She wouldn't let me put her down and demanded that I hold her and rock her for the next half an hour. Eventually, she started repeating over and over, The dark coming inside now. The dark coming inside now. 14. While babysitting a six-year-old boy, he took his puppy, held it up and started saying, Crucify it! Crucify it! Crucify it! 15. A toddler I was watching woke up in the middle of the night, screaming about something under his bed. I checked and told him, Go back to sleep, there's nothing under there. His reply? He's behind you now. And 16. I was babysitting overnight. Both kids sleepwalk and talk in their sleep. The oldest was crying in his sleep, got up and locked himself in the bathroom. It took a while to get him out. I ended up sleeping on the couch. In the middle of the night I woke up feeling like someone was watching me. He was standing next to the couch. I said, what are you doing? His response, the man watches you when you sleep. And then he walked back to bed. I didn't go back to sleep. And from the smithsonianmag.com website. Something I've occasionally wondered about, but never really knew where it came from. Queen Victoria dreamed up the white wedding dress in 1840. In America, in the 2010s, weddings follow a set script. Big church, fancy party, blushing bride in a long white dress that costs on an average about $30,000 to follow. But very recently, up until around the 1950s, most American weddings were quiet family affairs, says Beth Montemuro for Eon. It wasn't until more Americans had more money to burn that they started recreating the lavish ceremonies that had traditionally been the domain of the rich. But even among the extraordinarily rich elites, many of the now traditional practices harken back fewer than 200 years. Take, for instance, the white wedding dress. Though white is now seen as a symbol of virginity and purity, in the mid-19th century, white was the colour of mourning, not a colour in which to be wed, says the Washington Post. So, when fashion-forward Queen Victoria donned a white wedding dress for her wedding to Prince Albert in 1840, she met with criticism. In addition to the colour faux pas, Victoria's attire was considered far too restrained by royal standards, with no jewels, crown or velvet robes trimmed with ermine, the post says. After Queen Victoria's white dress, however, the trend caught on. Before her, women would wear a dress that fit the fashions of the day. Now it's rare to find wedding dresses 
that aren't white, though they do exist. And also from the smithsonianmag.com, an article by Brian Handwerk. Vampire Healing Young blood can mend old broken bones. Why do vampires from Dracula to Angel seem to crave the blood of the young and the beautiful? The undead may be onto something. Young blood, it seems, has some special healing properties that have been lost in older blood. A recent finding by scientists from the Hospital for Sick Children Toronto and Duke University challenges long-held ideas about why our bones have a harder time healing as we age. Their research discovered that old mouse bones mend like youthful bones do when they're exposed to young blood after a fracture. The traditional concept is that as you get older, your bone cells kind of wear out so they can't heal as well. And we thought we'd find that during the study as well, explains the co-author of the study, Benjamin Allman, of the Hospital for Sick Children. But it turns out that it's not the bone cells, it's the blood cells. As you get older, the blood cells change the way they behave when you have an injury, and as a result, the cells that heal bone aren't able to work as efficiently. When a bone is fractured, significant bleeding occurs at the site. Inflammatory blood cells help spur the process by which new bone cells heal the break over time. Allman and colleagues found that the blood cells of older mice don't drive this healing the way younger blood cells do, but they also wanted to see how those older bones would heal when exposed to young blood. The researchers paired lab mice, one old and one young, and subjected them to bone fractures. But that wasn't all they had in common. The living animal's circulatory systems were also joined together by a 150-year-old surgical technique known as parabiosis. Scientists removed a layer of skin from each mouse and stitched the exposed surfaces together. As the animals healed, their capillaries joined, enabling their two hearts to pump the same blood throughout the two bodies as a single system. Parabiosis, which has been gaining new popularity in ageing research, allowed Allman and colleagues to see what impacts the circulating factors of the younger blood's mouse had when introduced into the body of an older mouse. The experiment suggests that young blood cells secrete some as-yet-unknown molecule, likely a protein or possibly some other chemical that speeds up the healing of fractured bone. The molecule apparently does so by regulating levels of beta-catenin in blood cells known as osteoblasts. Keeping beta-catenin at the proper levels appears crucial for the formation of new high-density bone. This ability is greatly diminished in older animals' blood because it no longer secretes the molecule, whose exact chemical nature remains a mystery at this point. My guess is that there are a number of proteins involved that are made differently as we get older and that they are responsible for the difficulty in healing bone, Alman says. The findings could prove good news for ageing humans, but healing our bones won't require the type of transfusions used in the experiment, 
nor will it borrow the synthesized true blood variety that may soon enter clinical trials. Sharing human blood in this manner raises a number of red flags, ranging from practicality to possible medical complications. Instead, the critical next step is identifying the exact chemical nature of the molecule produced by young blood cells that older cells can no longer secrete. Pinpointing it could drive development of future drugs that would help enable older bone cells to work like they did in youth by either spurring older blood to function more like younger blood does or by simply delivering the proteins that the blood once did, enabling blood cells to do their healing work. It's not the cells responsible for making new bone that have changed, Allman says. Bone cells still have that ability to act like they are young again. If they could never behave like young cells again, and they were too worn out to produce bone the way they should, it would be really hard to change that, he adds. But these results show that this is a solvable problem. Now it's a matter of figuring out how best to make it work. The catalogue of unexplained events includes many strange instances of stones falling from the sky, or somewhere. Showers of stones, often from clear skies and in areas where rock slides from mountains cannot be blamed. Hails of stones pummeling rooftops and people, often causing damage and injury. Investigations of these events usually end with unnerved victims and with officials scratching their heads in puzzlement or out of desperation, inventing explanations that are sometimes as outlandish as the events themselves. From the paranormal.about.com website, Hails of Stones from Nowhere, by Stephen Wagner. Reports of this particular type of mystery go back centuries and come from all over the world. One of the earliest accounts was by Robert Kirk in 1690, who attributed the throwing of great stones to subterranean inhabitants that he called the Invisible Whites, and an unexplained stone-throwing incident that took place in New Hampshire was recorded in a pamphlet entitled Lithobolia, or the Stone-Throwing Devil, published in London in 1698. In some of these bizarre cases, the rain of stones occurs in connection with other paranormal phenomena, such as a haunting or poltergeist activity. In the famous Bell Witch Haunting of 1817, which included a host of strange goings-on, neighbours of the beleaguered bells were pelted with stones thrown by an unseen entity. The phenomenon is defined by the inability of investigators to identify any assailants or vandals, and usually by the lack of any motives for such an assault. So the questions arise, where do these phantom stones come from? Who or what is responsible for throwing or dropping them? Are there natural explanations for the phenomenon? Consider these remarkable cases and draw your own conclusions. Cooktown and Peckham Ireland, 
1880. From The Theosophist, September 1880. Reported in the English papers, vouched for by the Daily Telegraph and the Belfast Newsletter. The missiles in this instance fell under the very eyes of the police without their obtaining the least clue. Another similar incident as having happened at Peckham in broad daylight, despite every precaution of the police to entrap any trickster. Harrisonville, Ohio, 1901. The stone attack on this village began on the Sunday afternoon of October 13 when, as the Buffalo Express reported, a small boulder came crashing through the window of Zack Dye's house. No culprit could be found around the isolated house. And this was just the beginning. The next day, dozens of stones rained down in the heart of the village, breaking windows and striking citizens. Were mischievous kids to blame? The next day, all the male children of the village were gathered together. How could girls do such a thing? And stones fell for a third day. None of the villagers could detect where the stones were coming from. Sumatra, 1903. W.G. Grotendijk wrote about how small black stones, hot to the touch, came raining down in his bedroom at 1am. The most bizarre aspect of the case is that the stones seemed to come through the roof without making holes in it, and they fell, he said, in a motion that was slower than would be normal. Marcenel, Belgium, 1913. For four days in January, one house was besieged by an invisible stone thrower with remarkable accuracy. Police officers began to watch the house in an attempt to catch the vandal, but one wrote in his report, I have seen a stone arriving in the middle of a large window pane, and then came others in a spiral round the first point of impact. I even saw in another window a projectile caught in the fragments of the glass of the first hole it made, and subsequently ejected by another passing through the same point. No stone thrower was ever seen, although an estimated 300 stones struck the house. Ardèche, France, 1921. Most of these events are short-lived, lasting only a few days at most. But beginning in September, a farmhouse in France was victimised for four months. The stones dropped at all hours of the day, sometimes striking the family's children and a clergyman who was called in to investigate. In this case, apples were also thrown, and again with inhuman accuracy. Apples came speeding in through small holes in the shutters made by previous apples. Gyra, Australia, 1921. Along with a host of other poltergeist-type activity, the Bowen House in the small farming town of Gyra, New South Wales, suffered damage caused by a rain of stones from the sky. The family suspected that the paranormal activity was focused on their daughter Minnie, Unexplained thumpings seemed to accompany her, and at times stones crashed through her bedroom window and landed on her bed. Neighbours and police standing watch to catch any assailants were unsuccessful. In fact, one police sergeant was so unnerved by the events that he had to take a leave for some rest. Sumatra, 1928. One of the most astonishing cases was experienced and reported by the renowned paranormal investigator Ivan T. Sanderson. While sitting on the veranda of an estate house as a guest one evening, 
a shiny black pebble dropped onto the veranda out of nowhere. Dozens more followed. Sanderson, who was familiar with the phenomenon, tried an experiment. He ordered the stones gathered up and marked with chalk and paint or whatever could be used. Then they threw the stones back out randomly into the garden and shrubbery. We must have thrown over a dozen such marked stones, Sanderson wrote. Within a minute they were all back. Nobody with a powerful flashlight or super eyesight could have found those little stones in that tangled mess and thrown them back onto the veranda. Yet they came back, all duly marked by us. Oakland, California, 1943 in August of that year, Mrs. Irene Fellows finally called the police after two weeks of stones pelting her house at various times of the day. At first sceptical, the police inquiry became serious when their investigation clearly identified the pockmarks of the falling stones on Mrs. Fellows' roof and walls and by the litter of stones on her lawn. Mrs. Fellows and members of her family were frequently hit by the stones although to no serious injury. The thorough police investigation could offer no explanation for the stones, which seemed to materialise out of nothingness. Goa, India, between 1940 and 1950. Young villagers were having a party one evening, when suddenly stones began raining down on them. At first they thought they were being attacked by the local young folk of a neighbouring village but an investigation found no evidence of that. The young boys came back and found that a young boy in the house contracted fever during this period, which only left him when the stones stopped falling. The same thing happened the next day while they were gathered in the same house. Stones kept raining down on the house and the same boy contracted high fever. The fever left him only when the stones stopped falling. Brooklyn, Wellington, New Zealand, 1963. Stones and apples are one thing, but what about money? Would a vandal throw money? On March 1924, a guest house was inexplicably battered by a hail of stones and a few coins. Police were called and unsuccessfully searched for the perpetrator of the assault, which lasted for seven hours. Windows were smashed and people were struck, but none injured. The coins included New Zealand pennies and a large copper coin. The mysterious attack occurred again for two more nights, then stopped. Skinny Atlas, New York, 1973. Most often a particular house is the target for this phenomenon, but in this highly unusual case, two fishermen became the victims of the falling stones. A paranormal storm that followed wherever they went. The rain of pebbles began as they were finishing their fishing expedition and followed them as they made their way to the car. The shower ceased for a while, then resumed when they stopped briefly on their way home. Deciding they needed a drink, they went to a bar, and when they came out some time later, the rain of pebbles began again. As they were about to go their separate ways in their hometown of Liverpool, about 25 miles northeast of Skinny Atlas, the stones dropped on them one last time. Arizona, 1983. The attack on the Burke Bigler family began in September, just as they moved into their new home. 
Large rocks crash down on the house every night, usually between the hours of 5.30 and 7pm. The local sheriff's department could determine no assailant, even with helicopter surveillance. The authorities became reluctant to visit the Bergbigler home when they too were struck by falling rocks. This went on for weeks, culminating on December 4, while two newspaper reporters were interviewing the family. Rocks slammed into the side door of the house for two hours. What's most mysterious here is that to strike this door, the rocks had to pass through the garage where a van was parked through a narrow two-foot space. Centrahoma, Oklahoma, 1990. The stone attacks began on June 15 at the home of the McWethy family. One evening, some family members had moved some chairs onto the front lawn, hoping for a cool breeze in the hot summer air. Suddenly a stone flew at them from nowhere, then another, and a third. The family retreated inside, thinking it was local pranksters, but the assault continued for 24 hours, with some stones breaking windows. The stones ranged in size from a thumbnail to as large as a golf ball, and the rain continued well into July then August, and into the winter. As many as 50 neighbours came to help catch the culprits. They even marked some of the stones and threw them in a nearby pond. The marked stones came sailing back, wet. The poltergeist attacks further escalated into the throwing of coins, screws and other objects. This is just a small sampling of the hundreds of such cases that have taken place over the last century. There is no easy explanation for these rains of rocks and stones. Something supernatural is most definitely taking place, and most researchers theorise that it is a form of poltergeist phenomena, a physical manifestation caused most likely by the minds or powerful electromagnetic brain activity of the victims themselves. But this meagre explanation poses more questions than it answers especially in the cases in which the very physical stones seem to materialise out of thin air. From the mentalfloss.com The Librarian, His Tash, and The Most Dangerous Book on Earth by Oliver Buller There is no clearer sign of communism's decline, Russians joke, than its loss of hair. From Karl Marx's bushy mane to Mikhail Gorbachev's shiny pate. The movement went bald and bankrupt at the same time. Perhaps this isn't a theory to take too seriously. But you have to wonder, if Soviet officials had been aware of Charles Goss's glorious whiskers, would they have picked a fight with him? The locks on this English librarian were nothing special, but his moustache, oh, his moustache. The elaborate lip mitten slanted downward a full four inches on each side, far beyond his cheeks, obscuring all but a glimpse of his lower lip. It was a marvel of facial topiary that made Stalin's well-groomed bristles look like unkempt shrubbery. The moustache, of course, was also an indicator of his quirks. 
Goss was precise and eccentric, traits that helped him as an administrator at London's Bishopgate Institute, an independent cultural centre. But it was his decades-long fight with the agents of the Red Revolution in a battle that would suck in government ministers, journalists and ambassadors that truly demonstrated his grit. The source of that fight, a single book Goss took in as an afterthought, a fool's cap notebook from the early 1860s full of semi-legible handwriting. That notebook was... The Minute Book of the General Council of the International Working Men's Association, the IWMA, a foundational document of the global proletarian movement. Its sacred pages detail discussions between Marx and socialists throughout Europe. It revealed the first steps the world's workers took as they stoked the revolution. As years passed, law of the book's power grew. Politicians and intellectuals desperately tried to liberate it from the clutches of this whisked dinosaur. But Charles Goss was no ordinary guardian. The Bishopsgate Institute was established in London's East End in 1895 to improve the neighbourhood. Less than a decade before, the bleak streets were Jack the Ripper's stalking ground. Now a local rector hoped to curb the squalor by providing books and lectures to the poor. Education, he hoped, would civilise them. Unfortunately, he chose the wrong man to do it. Goss had worked in libraries across England before joining the Institute. He loved reading, but he loved books more. He was so attached to books that he kept his collections locked up. Instead of allowing the public to browse the Institute's shelves, he bought a Cotgreave Indicator a cumbersome system that specified through code which books were available and which were not. Goss was a terrible lender, but he had a keen sense for acquisitions. His collections were deep and varied, and he bought books from all over. In 1905, Goss began acquiring the library of George Howell, a trade unionist and politician who spent his life immersed in Victorian politics. When Goss installed the collection on the shelves of Bishop's Gate, he was confident he was providing readers with works they could find nowhere else, even if they couldn't actually see them. Among them was the Minute Book, acquired in 1910, an original with no copies. The IWMA had been born, as Goss had, in London in 1864, under the stewardship of Karl Marx. The organisation sought to link workers across Europe and America, allowing them to support one another and coordinate activities. Nothing like this had ever existed before. The communist parties that once ruled from Sarajevo to Siberia are the IWMA's descendants. So are the socialist parties of Europe and the leftist movements of South America. But despite its revolutionary nature, the IWMA was no underground organisation. This was liberal London, and the delegates, Polish, Italian and Hungarian exiles, American spiritualists, Russian anarchists, British and Swiss trade unionists, and French and German revolutionaries met openly in a gaslit hall near Trafalgar Square. Still, there were reasons to be vigilant, Prussian and French spies dogged the door, noting the radicals' movements and reporting back to their masters. 
By the early 1870s, the IWMA was suffering from internal paranoia and external repression, with allegations of ideological deviation and spying on every side. George Howell picked up the council's minute book, claiming it was for research purposes. Although the IWMA, now known as the First International, had collapsed by the time Goss got his hands on the book, its ideas had spread globally. A German Marxist party counted hundreds of thousands of members. British trade unionists were in Parliament. Russian revolutionaries had killed a Tsar and two interior ministers. In France, socialists controlled dozens of town councils. They all cherished memories of the First International, marvelling at the revolutionary profits it brought together. Howell's notebook was their equivalent of the Dead Sea Scrolls and they wanted to get their hands on it. Goss never publicised his acquisition of the minute book, which was, true to his rules, not on display. Nevertheless, the news leaked. Raymond Postgate, a journalist who helped found Britain's Communist Party, asked to read it. What happened next confirmed Goss's prejudice against people who wanted access to his precious literary possessions. Postgate wrote a book mocking the stuffy institute and giving instructions on how to penetrate its secrets. If you know exactly what you want, you can get it, he wrote. For all I know, there may be the crown of King John in it, but there is certainly a little treasure numbered 33188. Here is the original minute book of the General Council, signatures and all, from 1866 to 1869, the most important years for England. Postgate left readers in little doubt of the book's significance. This was the most important event of the century, he claimed. Under the powerful and enlightened leadership of Marx, it united and drilled the workers. It taught them to march together. In the early 1920s, it seemed as if the Red Menace would sweep aside civilization. The Bolsheviks had won Russia's civil war, defeating the Tsarist White Army, along with American, French and British interventionists. Communists were threatening to seize control of Germany. Could this terrible tome provide the spark to set the rest of the world ablaze? In the context of the time, it was very tricky, says Stefan Dickers, the current archivist at the Bishopsgate Institute. It was Red's under the bedtime. Everyone was terrified. Under the circumstances, Goss saw only one viable option. Put the minute book in a cupboard and hope everyone would forget about it. In 1922, the Soviet delegation in London asked for the book. The Institute's minutes show that its trustees declined the request, worrying about what crimes the Reds might commit in response. Goss promised he was taking special care for the safe custody of this and kindred books. If Goss thought locking the cupboard door would solve the problem, he was wrong. In July 1930, the Communists were back. The minutes read... The librarian reported that he had received a request from the agents of the Soviet government for permission to photograph the pages of the minute book. Naturally, Goss refused. But a more permanent solution would have to be found. After some consideration, the trustees rented a deposit box in Midland Bank and placed the treasure there. It wasn't just the communists who wanted the book. In February 1931, the British Labour Party asked to see it. The party's Ramsay MacDonald was Britain's Prime Minister at the time, but even that wasn't enough to persuade Goss of his good intentions. 
it was clear that the book needed additional security. Besieged, the Institute tried to offload the tome onto the British Museum. But in October 1934, the trustees learned that their counterparts would not reserve the manuscript from public use and it would be available to students in the usual way. That wasn't the solution they wanted. The Institute's leadership tightened security on its bank vault. Even Goss would now need the trustees' permission before he could access its contents. But the measure only heightened public interest. Some historians tried to sway the Institute by providing letters of recommendation. Professor Nicholas Posthumus of the University of Amsterdam even arranged for a bishop to forward his request in the hope that it would persuade Goss he was reliable. It didn't. By the 1940s, the Bishopgate Institute was hopelessly out of date, a Victorian time capsule. Students came to study its Cotgreave indicator rather than its books. Undaunted, Goss maintained his ways. Then came the Blitz, Hitler's bombing of London. Although the Institute was barely scathed by the explosives that shattered the city, it ceased to function normally. The trustees used the opportunity to stage a coup against their dictator. They wanted a new librarian. Goss was forced out. Heartbroken after 44 years of service, he never set foot in the Institute again, but he took comfort in one thing. Everyone would be too busy fighting the Nazis to ask for the minute book. In 1941, when the Germans attacked the Soviet Union, everything changed. The Soviets were Britain's allies now, and when they came bearing new requests for the book, the Institute no longer had Goss to fight its battles. Soviet officials submitted a request via a journalist, which the trustees stonewalled. But when the Soviet embassy asked, through the ambassador's wife, it wasn't to be denied. Finally, Ambassador Ivan Maisky pressed the issue, and Winston Churchill's Tories were there to back them up. His Majesty's government would be quite pleased for Madame Maisky to inspect and even transcribe the whole of the contents of the minute book the Institute's secretary recorded. The Gossless trustees were caught in a diplomatic pincer movement. Their defeat was near. By January 1942, Madame Maisky proposed to visit the book in situ, and the beleaguered trustees were forced to acquiesce. Soviet officials passed through the Bishopsgate Institute's honey-gold facade, grand even behind air-raid sandbags and into its sanctum sanctorum. How the mighty had fallen... They hadn't lost all self-respect, however. A journalist named Louise Morgan tried to come too, only to be informed that the manuscript was not available for inspection by the public. The book's heft gave it the appearance of a sacred document. It could have been a Bible held aloft by a gilded eagle in an Anglican church. When Maisky and his wife lifted it into their hands, they must have laughed with triumph that it was they who, after decades of effort, had rescued this relic from the reactionaries. But the joke was on them. A look inside the book. These days, inspecting the manuscript is less of an event. You enter the Institute, which is light and airy, with double-height reading rooms lined with bookshelves, and you fill out a slip of paper. Those who make the pilgrimage can receive the book or any other item from the Institute's world-class collection on radical history in minutes. 
Stefan Dickers, the Institute's archivist, brought me the minute book himself, laying it carefully on a special pillow. It is worrying to handle something of such historical significance. Staring at its marbled covers, I was nervously aware of all the other tables it had lain upon. This book had witnessed every meeting of the IWMA, when furiously smoking artisans thrashed out the theoretical basis of communism. It had lain underground in a bank vault as bombs pounded London and the future of humanity teetered on the brink. It had been coveted and feared for generations, and now here it was waiting to be read. Its spine crackled slightly when I opened it. The paper was thick and the ink faded. My urge was to flip through the book, to look and appreciate it without reading. On the early pages the words are scrawled huge. They look fast and urgent, reflecting the passions the debates aroused. Further on, another writer crammed words tightly together, so driven to communicate his thoughts that he couldn't bear to omit a thing. When I began to read these words, however, I was baffled. I could only conclude that Goss and the trustee, who was so terrified of this book, never actually read it. The minute book was no blueprint for revolution. It was page after page of wrangling over expenses, of descriptions of small strikes by micro-unions, such as the English amalgamation of cordwainers or the Hairdressers' Early Closing Association, of negotiations over the price of postage. It is of historical interest for people writing the life of Marx. This was the period during which he was writing his seminal Das Kapital or researching early trade unionism, but no threat to the Western way of life. In the book, members accuse one another of being Bonapartists, of being intriguers, of having fiddled their expenses and gained an extra pound. The minutes end before the international's final collapse into mutual recrimination between communists and anarchists who went on to form rival internationals. For committed proponents of Marxist revolution, the book must have been a depressing read. Mostly, it felt empty. It was as if you had pried open the Ark of the Covenant and found not tablets of stone inscribed with eternal verities, but Moses's tax return, a couple of supermarket receipts, and a note for the milkman. The Soviet government had its secretaries painstakingly transcribe the whole thing, detailing every cross-out and spelling mistake, and it published the work in 1950, four years after Goss's death. Goss's last communication on the subject was a letter in which he relinquished any claim he had to custodianship of the book, adding, I am sorry there is an intention to publish it. In his last photograph taken well into his 70s, Goss's moustache is diminished, though it still stands firm on his upper lip. Forget cats and dogs. It was raining spiders recently in southern Australia, according to local news reports. 
Millions of spiders dropped from the sky in the southern tablelands region, blanketing the countryside with their webs. They fly through the sky, and then we see these falls of spider webs that look almost as if it's snowing, local resident Keith Basterfield told the Goldburn Post. From the news.nationalgeographic.com website, millions of spiders rain down on Australia. Why? And it's an article by Christine Delamore. Though many newspaper reports have called them babies, the spiders are actually just very, very small adults called sheet web weavers or money spiders, according to Rob Bennett, a research associate in entomology at the Royal British Columbia Museum in Victoria. It's unclear what spurs these spiders to take to the skies in what are called mass ballooning events, Bennett notes. But once they do, millions crawl to the highest points of their habitat, say a fence pole or a tall plant, and send out silk strands that allow them to be lifted on air currents. It's a reverse parachute effect. They're going from the ground into the air, Bennett said. It's awe-inspiring. The vast majority of these aerial plankton will die during their journey, eaten by predators or killed by harsh weather conditions. But only a small fraction need to survive to set up shop in their new home. Thanks to this impressive feat, spiders tend to be the first creatures to recolonise an area, say an agricultural field, that has been completely destroyed. Such ballooning events aren't unique to Australia. They also occur in the Northern Hemisphere. Ballooning spiders have been spotted in the United States and Britain, for instance, but are still relatively rare and random, Bennett says. The spiders pose no danger to people. It's a spectacular natural history occurrence. In 2012, record rains in the same Australian region spurred a mass ballooning event. In that case, ballooning allowed the spiders to move out of places where they'd surely be drowned. Robert Matthews, a professor emeritus of entomology at the University of Georgia, said of that event. Producing large quantities of silk creates a sort of vast trampoline that supports the spiders as they're fleeing the water, he said. Although the acres of spiderwebs may gross out some arachnophobes, the impressive feat shows the versatility of things spiders can do with silk, Matthews noted. Silk has been a huge evolutionary breakthrough, he said, and this is one more example of why spiders have been a successful group. And if you visit the show notes, there's a nice picture there showing the landscape covered in millions and millions of spider webs. And it does look like snow, just near the area called Wagga Wagga in Australia. And to another interesting, mysterious event happening in Australia. Sea Sparkles put on sensational light show in southern Tasmania. And this is from the abc.net.au website. And it's written by Gregor Salmon. Parts of the River Derwent in Tasmania are lighting up like neon lights at night thanks to a flash mob of billions of minute marine organisms that glow in the dark. Over the past few nights around Hobart, blooms of single-cell organisms called dinoflagellates have appeared, turning the water's edge blue and drawing the curious out to the beach in the cold of night. The phytoplankton are nicknamed sea sparkles, but their scientific name is Noctiluca scintillans, which literally means twinkling night light. 
No one knows why, but the tiny cells flash when disturbed, illuminating the water around them and animating the motion. Jellyfish expert Lisa Ann Gershwin was one of the many who headed to South Arm, a peninsula south of Hobart, to enjoy the spectacle. Dr Gershwin said the display was the most spectacular she had ever seen. It was the most wondrous sight imaginable. I've seen a lot of bioluminescence in the past 25 years, and this is the best I've ever seen. Dr Gershwin said while bioluminescence was quite common, the concentration of blooms she witnessed were very rare. Word of the brilliant light show caught traction on social media after photographers ventured out to Mortimer Bay on May 13 to capture the most recent Southern Lights display. Matt Holtz, 35, said he and his friends noticed the water's edge was turning up blue in their photos and went for a closer look. When we walked down to the water's edge, we noticed the little speckles of blue in the water and when we disturbed it, the whole water in front of you lit up, he said. After Holes and his friends posted their photos online, other photographers went out searching. Over the following nights, bioluminescence was reported at Howrah Beach, Carlton River and South Arm. For keen aurora photographer Lena Wiz, the event was not to be missed and it did not disappoint when she found a bloom near Lauderdale. I got out of my car and was truly gobsmacked by what I saw, she said. As I walked along the beach, under my feet lit up with sparkling neon lights. I stomped and it shimmered even more. The entire shoreline was lit up neon blue and as each wave came in it lit up even more so. To stir the water with my hands and feet, to see my hands light up like something from Avatar was a thrilling, childlike experience. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 109, you can see some photographs and a couple of really cool videos about the event. From the creepypasta.com My Creation And this is posted by Unpatriotic Being a programmer, one of my dreams has always been to create an original video game, something that no one in the industry has done before. After seeing Spore, I became intrigued. Here was an attempt at putting people in control over a universe. After looking at what made video games popular, I realised the main aspect was control. People in their daily lives have no control over their environment. They are told what to do, where to go and how to live. Their jobs consist of standing or sitting somewhere until it's 5pm and they're allowed to head back home. It's no mystery, they're unhappy. For many people, video games are an escape to a world where they are in control or live exciting, fake lives filled with adventure. The aspect of control is found in strategy games, the adventure in role-playing games generally. 
I looked at games like The Sims and noticed what made them so popular is not just the illusion of control, but the degree of control. You have complete control over people's lives. Before The Sims, there was Sim Earth, a game in which you do not control individual people, but an entire Earth. I came to the conclusion that I had to develop a game similar to Spore, in which the player subtly guides evolution. What caused Spore to be such a failure is the lack of realistic control people had. It hardly resembled evolution. To do this, I began by generating a physics system. I know little of physics but decided to study it and tried to create a simplified version in which certain particles can interact in specific manners. When it comes down to it, physics is simply complex mathematics. I simulated energy and matter and created a simple system with the sun emitting energy circled by a planet catching said energy. I decided to create simple basic cells from scratch that were hard-coded, so to speak, in the system I was designing. They lived off the energy emitted by my sun and had a genetic code that coded for the substances produced by the cells. I guess you could call them my eukaryotes. My world within a few minutes would always fill with these cells, after which they would mutate and the most efficient cell in converting energy from the sun into useful substances for division would survive. It was very boring, but it worked, I guess. I decided to expand the physics system and force the cells to create waste products that were toxic and would kill them. I noticed that some cells responded to this by producing less waste. Others responded by producing something to emit the waste. Yet others developed chemicals to clean up the waste products. However, I noticed something fascinating. Running the simulation for a few centuries, a few minutes in real life, created cells that made massive amounts of specific waste products on purpose. I noticed that other cells died as a result of this, to which the other cells responded by usurping the building blocks they had created from energy the first predators were born. With the first predators, diversity in this little world rapidly increased. Some grew a response to flee when they encountered these toxins. Others grew resistance to them. The ones that grew resistance would eventually grow to utilise the toxins' products. Eventually, I noticed something interesting. The cells that escaped from the toxin grouped up with the cells that utilised the toxins. They stayed close together and helped each other. Eventually, these type of cells would attach to each other. They formed a weird symbiosis, where the cell that would normally flee would now move towards places where the toxins are, and the other cell would consume the toxins and provide the mover with some of the energy. Without going into too much detail, I became very excited and decided to let this simulation run during the morning. I had stayed up until 5am while I went to bed. When I woke up at around 11, I noticed the world I had created had changed and was barely recognisable. Massive plant-like structures grew in this world, consumed by other organisms that ate these plants. However, looking at the log, I noticed that the world hadn't changed much in the past two hours or so. I had reached another stasis point, where the simplicity of my simulation prevented more complex life from evolving. I expanded the system by breaking up energy into different types, 
with different wavelengths that were absorbed to different degrees by different molecules. I implemented vibrations in the air, created an improved simulation of weight and made some more minor tweaks. This caused the simulation to run slower, of course, but it was worth the sacrifice. I stayed around the whole day watching the simulation in excitement and playing with it, as it was incredibly addictive. Complex organisms evolved that cooperated, plants that depended on each other, or attracted predators that ate the horrible-looking creatures that ate from them. I had fun, and noticed that some creatures evolved warning calls. This means that if they noticed a predator, they would issue a sound, and all others of their kind would flee into holes they had dug in the earth. Others evolved mating calls. I decided to have some fun. I made a dump tool, allowing me to dump specific organisms on the earth, and wrote my name with it. I created ten meteorites and dumped them on a piece of land to create an island because I wanted to see whether the animals stuck on both sides would evolve in different directions. I made a smiley island with volcanic eruptions. By that time I realised I had stayed up until 5am again as I heard the birds outside. I felt tired again and I woke up at 1pm or so. When I looked at my simulation again I felt a sense of shock. Different groups of animals of one species had made statues with stones. Some in the form of a smiley, some in the form of my name. I didn't know why they were doing this or how. What I did notice is that they would attack each other from time to time. I didn't know what to do with it, but I concluded that these organisms must have somehow noticed that the smiley and the name I had written was special. The fighting disturbed me, and so I decided to create a massive mountain ridge through volcanic eruptions to separate the two groups. By this time, changes were happening fast compared to earlier. While I had to spend a night sleeping to see tribes evolve in my simulation while I was getting something to eat or to take a bathroom break, I would notice the tribesmen wearing different styles of clothing or having changed their type of dwelling. Their numbers were also continually increasing. At some point I noticed the creatures began making their own symbols on the ground and no longer just copying mine. Most of the symbols seemed random and unintelligible to me, but one stood out. The organisms had created a symbol that resembled them, a small circle with a square beneath it. Within the square a dot could be found in the centre. This was meant to symbolise the visual organs of the creature, as the creature had two visual organs, one in the front of its body and one in the back. In the square, other sensory and reproductive organs were symbolised. Next to the circle on top of the square could be seen something resembling the drawing of a fork. Two of these forks had been painted in opposite directions, and next to that the smiley face could be seen. I realised something, they were not communicating towards each other. They were trying to communicate to something out there. My meddling in their landscape had somehow made them realise that something powerful was out there, capable of changing their world. I wondered whether symbols like Stonehenge and the pyramids in my own world could be signs of primitive people trying to do the same thing, begging their creator or overseer to initiate contact with them. However, one thing was undeniable by now. These creatures realised there is something out there. I wondered long, did I have a responsibility to initiate contact with something that isn't real? 
Or are these creatures real in a different way? Can something be real merely by being capable of having a concept of itself? And even if they are real, does that mean they will be better off with me initiating contact with them? Should I change my simulation to ensure them permanent happiness? And is it even possible for me to do such a thing? I did not want to confirm my existence to them, but I did want to be able to communicate with them. I decided to program a prophet, an organism that looks like them and cannot be proven by them to be different from themselves and is fully controllable by me. I let it be born into a powerful position as the son of a leader. I decided to lead by example and seek to teach these creatures English so I could communicate with them. As prophet, I instructed them that English was the language we could use to communicate with the Greater One. They would have no way to be sure if it was true or not. I hadn't made up my mind yet about whether I could reveal myself or not. But I did want to be capable of understanding what they wanted to tell me. In a few generations, they all spoke English. And rapidly, signs began emerging on the ground in English. Guide us. Show us your greatness. Help us. And during times of disease or hunger or general misery, give us food. Show us a miracle. End our suffering. I decided that I couldn't maintain a world with such suffering as emerged in the simulation without intervening. Why would I accept a world with death and rape and murder if I could make one without it? I implemented fixes that were gradual, so they could not be proven to be miraculous. Murder and rape would over the years become rarer, and so would death at a young age. I figured that they would not notice if the change happened over generations. But they did. Thank you. All blessings be upon the greatest. We love you. And most heartbreaking, come back to us. Tears ran over my face. There is something there and it knows I am here, able to contact them, but unwilling to do so out of fear of what I have created. But I felt I had a responsibility, and so I loaded up the character I had created again and went to their king, asking to talk to all of their wisest men. But by this time, I was not believed. You are number 1341, claiming to be an avatar of the Greatest One. If you are him... I pray for your forgiveness, but please show us a sign before demanding of me to gather all our wisest men. And so I hesitated, but responded, Tomorrow there shall be two more meteors falling on a deserted island in the sea before you on the same day. And when they do, doubt no more, and realise that I have come back to repair the broken world that I have created. And so I exited my avatar and progressed the simulation until the next day was reached and threw two meteors on the deserted island before the mainland where thousands had gathered to watch whether a sign would be given. Upon the descent of the meteors, celebrations were held. All the sentient organisms gathered around the small house where I had exited my avatar and lay flat on the ground in apparent worship of the man who was last seen there and afraid of coming close. I don't know who was more afraid by now, me or them. I loaded into my avatar again and exited the house. The creatures continued to lay flat on the ground in utter silence. It is as if they felt unworthy of speaking. 
Let your wisest man stand up, I told them. And up stood one of these bizarre-looking creatures. Thank you for coming back. Pray tell us, do you have any requests of us? I hesitated before saying, There is nothing you can do for me that pleases me, but for you to be good to one another and to contact me with your wishes and fears. The creature responded, We know you come from a different world and we are afraid. We understand how vulnerable we are and how incomplete our experience is. Please allow us to join you in the world that you created our world from. I began crying behind my computer as I responded, I do not know how. The creature responded, At risk of offending you, please understand the severity of our situation. By living in a world that is incomplete, we are at constant risk of disappearing forever, never to be seen again. We would never even consciously realise that our end had come. I realised that they were unable to comprehend that I only had absolute power within their world and not outside of it. They also did not realise that my knowledge of their world was limited. I may have created it through simple laws, but those simple laws gave way to a reality of its own that is more complex than I can comprehend. I responded again, I only have power in your world. In my world I have no power. And so I cannot bring you there because my world is not under my control. I also do not understand the world I have created. I do not know what is best for you. Only you do. And you have to inform me of what you want. And the man waited for a moment. I was about to think they were going to end communicating with me. Before their wisest man responded. You have created a world that is incomplete with creatures that cannot escape it and you have no power to save them. They are completely unfree, and they have no power. We are completely at your mercy, and so we ask you from the deepest parts of our hearts. End us. By now I was crying as I was confused and asked to do the impossible. My own child was asking me to kill it. This is when I noticed the lights in my room flickering before my computer suddenly shut down. I screamed. Upon trying to turn on my computer again, I noticed it wasn't working. I called the power company who told me that due to an accident, a power surge had travelled through the grid. They promised me they would pay me for any damage done. I hung up and contemplated. The coincidence of what had just happened was too great to be imaginable. And I wondered, if these creatures were at the mercy of a confused creator, could the same be said of me? And so, did my creator just prevent me from repeating his own mistake? The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, origins.com.
info. And don't forget we have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy, or just click on the link from the show notes. And it's also a big thank you to Luke Hewson, Alexandra Regia, Attila Miklosi, Sean Yarnell, Matt Huntington and Dante Draven. Those kind people have given the podcast a donation over the past few weeks. And I know the podcast has been a while coming, but basically I'm working full-time at the Botanic Gardens at the moment as the cooler weather here in Queensland is our busiest time of the year and I've been in there five and sometimes six days a week. So today I managed to get a day off and I thought I'd make a podcast for all my good listeners out there who are, of course, my friends. So until next time, whenever that may be, because I'm working five days a week again next week, this is Paul saying thank you everyone and keep well and bye for now.